I had to stay clear of political ideology. Um, as anarchic or utopian as I might have thought myself to be, um, I was not interested in um, overthrowing anything or anybody uh, because I, I simply believed that those things would take care of themselves just by natural processes of, of decay and destruction. I mean, the bad things would go away and the good things would, would sprout. And uh, I mean, it's a very simplistic uh, thinking, but uh, I knew how to do a couple of things. And I thought, this is the only useful thing I can bring to people. Just make them, make them feel good, make them feel happy. And make them think about uh, um, possibilities behind their, uh, beyond their own uh, musical uh, experiences. to this th thought uh, I had because uh, the end of the 1970s because uh, uh, what I'm going to tell you in a, in a little brief detail is, is, is how my music began to actually step outside of the concert hall. I mean, it was always tending there. Uh, it, it tends there as soon as you start, I mean, as, a, as an avid uh, field recordist, and well, I don't use that word, I never could use that fancy word, but I was always recording sound, I recorded everything around me, everything. Uh, even my personal life, private, you know, whatever stuff, you know, people make, making love on, in rooms on the other side of the wall. I, I, I've done all of that kind of thing. And, um, In the middle 1970s, in fact, it was 1975, I got a phone call from uh, 
talk about occupations from a student uh, at the uh, Accademia dell'Arte Dramatica here in Rome. So I'm, I'm sitting there doing nothing in my studio, and, you know, and the phone rings, and this kid calls and says, Alvin, you got to come. I mean, uh, I, he, I don't know how these kids knew me, but they knew me. And he says, come down here and do something with us. We're, we're occupying the, I said, theater students. What am I going to do with you? And so I hopped on my bike and went over to the, to the, uh, to the Academia in, in this big building somewhere. They were temporarily in some space. That, I don't know. Was, their own building was uh, unusable at that time. But anyway, they were in this other place in a huge room, big auditorium, and uh, I got there and I said, okay, Everybody just lie on the floor, just lie on the, lie on the floor. And they just, uh, and uh, open your mouth and try to vibrate your vocal cords as slowly as you, as you possibly can, as if trying to create some um, vocalization before vocalization, such as just just passing, just like that. And so I got, you know, 150 kids lying on their back doing this thing. And I didn't have to say anything else. 45 minutes later, the room was like, people were screaming, howling. I mean, it just built up into this gigantic wall of sound. The place was, I thought, was, was truly gonna, like, you know, just, like the windows were gonna blow out. And it was an amazing chorality, an amazing choral. I said, this is it. I'm gonna work with these, I wanna work with these kids. And, and I'm, actually, this was the beginning I started making these improvised choral pieces for non-musicians. This is where it all started. And as you said, you know, a week later, the occupation was over. The crazy day, the director of the school called me, said, would you like to join uh, our faculty and uh, we'll initiate a course in vocal improvisation. <laughs> I mean, those were the 70s. Those were the 70s. And people here were like, reinventing everything and that led me and my life and my uh, various projects over the next 30 40 years uh, to seriously making music outside the concert halls and and opening those possibilities already they were latent in in some projects that Mev the, the group Musica Electronica Viva had done uh, in the late in the late '60s, and uh, because inherent in that work was the opening of spaces and the opening of of personal and private space to public, uh, allowing the public into the music and, and so on and so forth, all of these uh, uh, pseudo utopian I say pseudo utopian, but they were utopian at the time. 
uh, ideas about uh, uh, liberating music from itself, as it were, and liberating the spaces from itself. And, uh, and then here I was with this key in my own pocket, which really opened, opened the door to myself and my own creative world, which was already somehow going in that direction. And, and suddenly I, I, looked at, I looked around me and I said, every space is a concert hall, anywhere. Well, the project was uh, um, a piece called um, uh, Omnia Fluvium Romam Ducunt, uh, which means all rivers lead to Rome. If I said that correctly in Latin, I hope so. And it took place uh, in one of the, in my, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful and magical um, uh, Roman sites uh, Roman ruins um, in, in the city of Rome, which is the ancient uh, baths of Caracalla, uh, which are, are standing uh, only a few uh, massive uh, supporting walls and and uh, and other other architectural structures. There's there's no roof, of course. It was one of the uh, I don't have the statistics in mind, but it it was one of the largest. Um, uh, baths ever ever constructed uh, in the city in the year in the year 2076 uh, I believe uh, uh, and uh, the other important uh, 
a note about this ancient uh, baths, aside from its having uh, three huge uh, pools, uh, which in, in the typical style which you can find now in uh, many of the uh, uh, spas and baths around the world, is uh, three uh, different temperatures, a hot pool, a medium warm pool, and a freezing cold pool that you would use. Uh, the only, the interesting thing that I heard most recently about these baths is that it was used by approximately 6,000 people per day. This gives you the size, this gives you an idea about the dimensions of this place. And the machinery, that is the heating machinery and the cooling machinery that, that the Romans devised uh, to, to keep the temperatures of the water going and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, it, and it was not only a, a, um, a, a meeting place, a social meeting place uh, for every, anybody, it was free, there was no charge to use these places, but there were two, gi uh, two uh, huge palestras, two huge, uh, what we would call gyms, workout spaces and two libraries. So it could be, uh, it, it was a place not only of uh, bathing, as it were, uh, uh, but of um, exercising and, uh, and reading and discussing. There were places for discussions okay. and and uh, and so it, it was essentially an all-purpose social center uh, uh, that uh, and it was okay. one of the th three in Rome okay. at that time there were two near the station the now central train station and 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 this one which was considered um, uh, southeast Rome uh, at, at actually at the foot of the Aventine Hill. So, so the Aventine was one of the most popular, populous, popular uh, people's neighborhoods in, in, the, in the city. This project um, came out of the blue, and it was proposed to me by uh, the two directors of a uh, former prominent uh, art gallery in Rome, run by Mario Pieroni and Dora Stiefelmeier, uh, Mario's wife, and they've been one of the most outstanding modern and postmodern uh, gallerists 
in in the city um, whose works um, feature or have featured in, uh, uh, in in the past and continue to feature uh, artists like uh, Yanni uh, Kunelis and uh, and Michelangelo Pistoletto, two prominent names among among many others. Uh, uh, Parrucello would be another big name in their former stable. In recent years, they've uh, moved to uh, developing the first sound art gallery uh, in the city, which is called RAM, R-A-M, and uh, that stands for Radio Arte Mobile. And they got this idea that they wanted to create moving uh, radio events uh, in festivals and places and and uh, in any case uh, uh, my natural inclination to uh, uh, working uh, as a uh, composer and a sound artist and and environmental uh, um, sound art worker uh, came in, into into uh, a natural harmony uh, with Mario and Dora and they've produced many works of mine uh, uh, in in the past uh, in their gallery spaces and outdoors uh, they have an outdoor uh, space which is called no man's land uh, uh, in the uh, uh, eastern part of the Abruzzi Mountains. No Man's Land is a small bit of land that Mario acquired and, and, uh, and, they, uh, and there's a, uh, a piece of mine currently uh, still running if, if the machinery is still running. Uh, uh, it's called Pian, Pian de Pian Piano. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's an old uh, grand piano which is half without legs and sitting on boulders and anyway, it's, it's, uh, you've probably seen pictures of it, but maybe not. case their their work uh, uh, they've decided to leave the gallery world and move out into into other places and with a contact already established through a prominent work of Michelangelo Pistoletto which is on the grounds of the Termi di Caracalla they had asked me if I would be interested in doing a sound installation there and then the answer of course was was yes, I mean, who, who wouldn't be? It's one of the most marvelous and suggestive magical spaces in the city. And uh, with uh, infinite numbers of uh, um, possibilities for creating uh, a, a 
a non-representational uh, sound event where, and I don't want to use the word immersive because as you walk into these and through these old ruins, uh, you become aware of, of sounds coming out uh, at times from the left, from the right, from overhead, from under your feet coming directly out from underground uh, and uh, using that I was using tunnels and and and, and waterways that, that had been installed by the ancient Romans uh, so I was able to as they say uh, in, in the uh, current uh, lingo I was able to sonify this entire space in a way quite randomly but without any particular acoustic principles other than just uh, fine-tuning it as best I could with uh, 20 small loudspeakers of very, very high quality, uh, which were placed uh, um, in old birds' nests and holes that had time, time had carved out of the Roman bricks and uh, some as high as 20, 30 meters high, uh, others, as I say, under your feet. Uh, and, uh, and so th there was no real logic except to put as many of these speakers as we could. We were limited, in this case, to only 20 uh, over a space of um, uh, approximately, uh, let's call it, the size of about three three football fields of, of space. So, and in, in, uh, that is on the surface, uh, and not not counting the, the the cubic meters above your head and and, and so on. So the place was, a, it was enormous, and it was an enormous task. It took forever with thousands of uh, feet of, uh, uh, meters of cable, <laughs> cables to reach. We couldn't use, we couldn't use uh, wireless uh, stuff because of obvious interference with communications. And, you know, you can't do that at huge distances. But um, uh, in the end, with, 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 with patience and time and uh, and a great uh, staff of, uh, of uh, technicians, and especially my personal assistant, uh, uh, Angelo Maria Faro. Uh, we, we got this thing uh, hooked up, and um, basically uh, with three independent uh, channels, so that is three sets of loudspeakers, which are, are playing. Well, all of the all of the loudspeakers are playing independently. So we, uh, Angelo, created a together with me a a, a working uh, uh, patch, as we call it, to distribute the sounds um, uh, in a way that. Uh, it has absolutely no logic whatsoever to it. So you can hear something 
coming from way over there and then suddenly it's joined by something from way over that way and then suddenly those two things fade out and then suddenly some sounds emerge from under your feet and then start coming from left and right and center uh, uh, without, uh, without any, any reason, very close to you or, or very, very far away. So th this uh, kind of anti-sound installation, uh, that is, uh, it's, it's a almost constant presence of sound, but it includes a lot of silence. So as uh, using sound files uh, that would go from anywhere, let's say, a minimum of 30 seconds to three minutes in, in duration, um, uh, these included uh, hefty silences in, in, the, in the files themselves. So at certain points, uh, it could happen just by the random uh, generation of, of these files themselves, the random selection and uh, reproduction, that there could very well be minutes of silence. And I'm not going to answer that right now. That determines uh, the essential uh, technical and logistical design and uh, even the aesthetic design uh, of this of this uh, of this work. And uh, it was for me the the most challenging and uh, and yeah it, it it was one of the most challenging artistic. Uh, uh, encounters I've had in my life. Uh, first of all, for the dimensions of the space that, that I was using, and secondly, for the nature of the space itself. Uh, a 2,000-year-old uh, um, set of marvelous, uh, what today appears to be uh, marvelous ruins uh, in, in the center of old Rome, uh, in, in a center, in a place where I've already lived uh, most of my adult life. Uh, and uh, you say, well, you know, you, you walk by this history, this history is under your feet, it surrounds you, it's in the air, it's in, it's in your nostrils, it's, it's, it's in your eyes, in your ears practically, uh, uh, every day of your living life here. And... Uh, and uh, it, it becomes a wonder. It, it, and to live uh, these, these parallel lives of uh, living in a perfectly uh, marvelous and perfect, uh, 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 noble digital times, and then, you know, living side by side with these ancient uh with this ancient history which is literally in your face uh, uh 24 24 7.
so when as a resident here and I'm not even you know I'm, I'm Roman only to the point of being a, a foreigner who's, who's lived here for over 50 years um, you you do develop a relationship but my relationship with old Rome was you know it only came to life when uh, friends from the outside would come here and I'd take them around and show them and then I would see the city again with new eyes I would see the old city and I'd say oh my god this amazing uh, and suddenly I found uh, it, but it never would never occur to me that I would ever have access to any of these places to to as a, as a not only as a background but as a as, as a natural inspiration uh, to my own sound work to my own creativity and and uh, and what I didn't want to do was do the obvious thing you know do some kind of idiotic sound and light, you know, revisiting old Rome. But a little bit of that uh, uh, was behind some of my choices of sounds. Most of my choices were sounds of, um, of, uh, that, that were not necessarily easily recognizable. For example, using the sounds of a, a bottle blown on and then ampli- I don't know if I can do it now. Using, using these kinds of sounds that, that see could be located somewhere in, in human memory and human experience, but suddenly when you hear them coming out of these walls, out of these out of these magical archways and half-ruined circles and holes in the ground, and uh, it, 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 they take on an almost uh, uh, human uh, quality, uh, as if uh, some. <laughs> Some 2,000-year-old people were trying to talk to you. <laughs> no, I'm, I don't mean that seriously. But what I'm saying is that uh, I wanted to make a piece about uh, that evoked something that you could not say what it was any more than you can say what those ruins are when you stand in them and marvel at them or let them marvel at you. Uh, so uh, I was just looking for simple signs, simple sonic signs. Uh, they could be pulsing, they could be beaming, they could be intermittent, they could be rhythmic or, or, or static, uh, that vaguely represented some kind of um, imaginary architecture uh, that came at you randomly, not aggressively, not, uh, but you just didn't know from, from where or when things were going to happen. And uh, it, it's, this gave the, 
the surrounding spaces are kind of, um, let's call it a, um, their own reality. It gave those spaces their own reality uh, as if there were hidden events going on uh, in those old walls, in those old stones, in those uh, pools and baths and, and, and structures that, that, uh, that you, uh, that, that already take on a, uh, a modern significance in, in, in our minds. We, we look at them in, in, with our postmodern heads and, and see all kinds of stuff that really isn't there. This work got me to a place, uh, this I can tell you, where I said, I'm just gonna leave all the bullshit out. I'm gonna leave all the frills out. I mean, a couple of frills I do, there's howling wolves, okay. So I gave Rome its wolves back, but, uh, uh, and, and, and a couple of birds that, that can be seen on any Roman, in any Roman paintings in the house of Claudius or the house of all of the Caesars and so on on, on Palatine Hill. But aside from those uh, uh, more uh, narrative uh, and literal uh, quotations from ancient Rome, you can't imagine, I mean, no one could imagine what the sound of the sound of the city was, and, and who cares? And that isn't my job to recreate that. That's for some Foley artist in the movies. But if I were putting some beams of high-frequency oscillators that are just going from left to right and right to left, and they come in for a minute and they go out in another minute in a kind of a, a crescendo, diminuendo structure. Uh, this to me was enough. And, and so there, there's a lot of very low frequency rumble and sometimes oscillators, sometimes natural sounds. Uh, there's a, occasional um, uh, human voice, uh, 
which have been modified, at least transposed two octaves lower, giving a very uh, stretched and, and unnatural uh, effect. Uh, there's, as I said, uh, some animal, natural animal sounds. There's a, even a couple of lions and elephants that, that come around once in a while. They enter into the picture out of nowhere. There's, uh, um, but by and large, the sounds, as I say, which are which are selected randomly, you don't know when they're coming or why they're there, um, um, are, have a long constancy to them. I have a general constancy to them, such as dripping water, flowing water, uh, and the like. I mean, very, very simple stuff. Uh, but sounds that one could have actually heard in, in, in such a location. Again, not to create a sense of reality there, that isn't the point. But those were, those were important, but they are coming together always and mixed, uh, as I say, uh, uh, with great unpredictability with other kinds of sounds which are absolutely uh, uh, um, unidentifiable to our experience, other than say, oh, that's a sine wave, or, or that's uh, a low tone, or, I mean, other than that. What this work did, in, uh, did to me, uh, when I said it was a big challenge, it was it reduced. Uh, a, a lot of my work now tends to, to uh, especially when I'm doing my solo uh, keyboard pieces and things of species and the like, um, I, I tend to uh, take pleasure in also letting my fingers uh, play the sounds of the entire world. The sounds coming from anywhere, from any kind of thing. Uh, mechanical, human, uh, natural, whatever. And, uh, and mixing those at random just through motions uh, uh, that my fingers uh, take. Uh, here, I reduced all of that to a very, very narrow, simple body of, of sonic sources that, um, that I, I felt always would, would stay on a, on a level of as abstract as possible, but as non-narrative as possible. So, uh, not to give you too many clues to why whatever it is you're hearing, you, you're hearing it. Uh, and, uh, and that's as close as I can get to describing, I think, what, 
what this uh, work was about. Uh, because uh, the joy, above all, the joy uh, uh, and the luxury of having such a marvelous space to work with uh, was such that uh, um, it, it, in and of itself was an inspiration. So to me, it was a special uh, time in my life uh, where the creation of this particular piece was, uh, it, it seemed to me, a kind of kickstart to, to another uh, moment in my creative life, uh, which I, I hope there'll still be chance to, to find out what it is. Well, first of all, the, the idea um, to have a, a little celebratory event, I mean, as uh, sad as you're not celebrating anything, but you're celebrating the actual closure uh, of this installation, uh, which uh, in itself was technically and economically and, and in, uh, in every way in its involvement with the city and, and, and the... the um, uh, and, and the political structure surrounding uh, uh, such an event. Uh, it, it was just a, a, a little party. Uh, that is, uh, it was a little a gesture of, of goodbye. And, and so um, it wasn't very studied. It was... Uh, uh, the, the the music that Angelo and I made uh, in that moment uh, uh, w was completely improvised. We we had no chance to rehearse whatsoever for technical reasons, because we couldn't do it the day before and break it down and set it up again. And uh, um, and so it was uh, uh, a a one-off, total improvisation. And uh, the only thing I knew is that I wanted to use uh, a, an ancient uh, shofar, an ancient uh, uh, horn, which I like to play from time to time, and to uh, use this horn uh, because of its uh, ancient history, uh, um, not only, not only in, in, in Jewish culture, uh, tr uh, traditional Jewish culture, uh, uh, but in, uh, in in human culture, uh, human beings have played these primitive animal horns for millennia, probably for about forty thousand years, uh, as we know, the earliest instruments that humans played. Um, uh, so. I just wanted to bring this horn uh, uh, into that space 
uh, as the single generating sound uh, because that's what it did. It generated electronic sound and the, the generation uh, was enabled by uh, Angelo's uh, brilliant uh, software design and his ability to create that stuff and to modify it in real time. And so that's, that's all that was going on. And we were, uh, it was announced as a concert, but uh, really should have just been as if, you know, like two guys just suddenly showed up and just started playing and then just left. Uh, uh, and as if nothing ever happened. So, uh, I mean, concert is too big a word to put on that event. It was really just uh, a single, for me, a single gesture of, uh, uh, of saying goodbye to, to this otherwise uh, um, uh, very uh, uh, happy and productive uh, event that we had created for the last uh, several months. And there was uh, also this uh, aspect of, uh, you know, playing this unusual instrument, uh, which is not used uh, or seen or outside of, uh, you know, use in a synagogue somewhere. But people don't even play a horn that size. I mean, that's these are these big Yemenite uh, horns that, well, they're not Yemenite horns. They they come. They're African. The one I play is an African kudu, and uh, uh, I, I have even big, bigger ones, which are uh, uh, to hear, but don't sound as good as the one I play. Uh, and that goes back to, you know, you know my own roots in Jewish culture as, as a kid, and, 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 uh, and, and it leaves me... Uh, uh, I don't. I don't think of it so much uh, through those connections, but they're they're there. They're, they are there. They're
Look, I mean, so a lot of your work has been about in situ or uh, about a particular place, rooted in a particular place? All, always, um, yeah. Not always, but, but m much of the time, yes, yeah. So, um, some of those, like the maritime rights are formative. Yeah, absolutely. Some of those are installations. So, do you have any more thoughts about the, the difference of staging a sort of um, site specific work that's more kind of formative? My thoughts, uh, 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 um, uh, are always moving outwards uh, very much along the lines of, of the great um, of the great land artists uh, uh, the, the American land artists in particular uh, who who recognized the visual uh, and sculptural possibilities of big open spaces and uh, this opens up to me a, a most natural, I mean, I've been working in that, you know, on lakes and rivers and ports and uh, forests and underground and this and that. You know, I've been working with uh, uh, natural spaces uh, since, um, since the, the, late, the late 70s, actually. And I'll tell you a little bit about that, how that all came about. Uh, but now with this Caracalla behind me, I'm really looking to, um, to interest uh, um, uh, future possibilities and producers and people uh, of, of creating permanent sound installations in large open spaces. And uh, simply because of the possibilities of, of not moving sound so much as letting sound be moved. Uh, and, uh, and especially uh, having these experience of things moving from great distances towards you and away from you and uh, using the, our 360 binaurality uh, um, in, in, in an enriched way. at the school really led to working with students. And we would go out and do works, uh, for example, we, I would say, oh, 
let's say we'll, we'll go, there's some monumental steps somewhere. We're going to make a piece on monumental steps. And, you know, completely random choreography, people just moving uh, simply, stepping and sounding, stepping and sounding, stepping. So you get, you know, say 50 kids, a large group, and get, and just make these really simple pieces. Well, the point I wanted to make about uh, this experience at the Academia, Academia dell'Arte Dramatica where I was uh, teaching uh, and, and organizing events uh, around the uh, unknown uh, yet unexplored world of vocal improvisation, group vocal improvisation, not singular people. So I wasn't trying to make them into musicians, but I was uh, actually uh, thinking uh, along the lines of uh, large uh, blocks of uh, uh, vocalizing choruses. Uh, and, um, and this led uh, to one of a, a very important uh, uh, stepping stone in, in my own life, which was creating with my students the first uh, maritime rites uh, in Rome on the Laghetto di Villa Borghesia on this lake, beautiful little lake with a, with a 18th century Roman temple and ducks and geese and so on and so forth, lovely place. And, uh, and I began to think, because I was already looking for sites where I could work with my students and I thought this, hey, I was, and at the same time, I was developing these pieces using fog horns and ship horns, and and uh, going into my uh, into this whole maritime rights world, and um, and that led to the creation in 1979 of of of. Uh, the first maritime rights uh, performance, which was my students, that is, at the time I think we had 30, 35 people. We rented uh, all of the boats at the lake, uh, which is at the top of the Aveneto, and, um, and practiced this thing, I and mean, that we did indoors, of course. Uh, they had their voices, no instruments. They had recorded tapes on large boom boxes. And we got in these boats uh, with a... No, I don't have that here. It's somewhere else. Anyway, there's a, there's a score, a very simple score. They don't have to read any notes. They just sing. Uh, long tones or short tones. Occasionally they actually sing a melody, a, a known popular melody of their choice. So there were like uh, 11 boats 
each moving completely independently, completely randomly, as if they were just out boating on this beautiful lake, except they're actually creating a, a randomly choreographed, randomly uh, created, uh, uh, unconducted piece of music. And suddenly I, I, looked at, I looked around me and I said, every space is a concert hall, anywhere. Anywhere where I'm standing, or not even standing. Any, any place I can imagine is a, is, a, is a musical space. And already I knew that from recording sound. I mean, anything around me was, was already, you know, as John, John Cage said, you know, he just opens his window, he said, there's, there's the symphony. It's right here. You don't have to go very far. And, uh, and, and then making that exchange on a, on a conscious artistic level of putting yourself in um, often beautiful spaces, such as this lake or around some monuments. We actually used uh, Hadrian's tomb as one of the, which is circular, and we would do circular things around this tomb, and uh, you know, var various kinds of, yeah, monumental steps uh, um, along riverways and so on and so forth. So all of these kinds of things uh, just opened up uh, to me personally. A, a, a marvelous chapter in, in my own creative life, uh, which, as I say, I, I felt was coming anyway, but then this, this uh, uh, accidental uh, gig that I, was, that I gained at the, at the National uh, Academy for Theater Arts in Rome was uh, was was a real key.
know, the kids knew me because uh, um, they, somebody uh, among them, you know, there, there, there were a lot of young fans of mine. I'd already put out the, the Giardino Magnetico, songs and views from the Cante Veduto, Giardino Magnetico, and I'd already put out um, Fiori Chiari, Fiori Oscuri, and these, I don't say these were, these weren't big hits, but, you know, in, in those days, I produced those myself, or together with other people, but anyway, I actually distributed them myself, and, and in, in, in a very quick time, each of the 2,000 LPs of each of those things were sold. I had a lot of, I didn't know this, but I mean, I would get letters from people and then th this music really, really became uh, underground popular. I mean, that it, it, it became an underground hit and uh, everything was done completely uh, do-it-yourself. There was no, there was no nobody. I mean, I, was, I used to go to the mail you know, to the post office and mail them one by one uh, to, to people and they would hand pack them and, and stuff. And this was the, you know, truly the good old days. And, and, and so therefore, there, there must have been among some of those students, people who knew me and admired me and said, hey, let's get Alvin Curran here. Yeah, well, that is, that's, yeah, that's the little childhood, you know, racconto, kids talking, you know, it's like a fable, a little bit, yeah, 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 there is yeah. a little boy, yeah, talking, that's actually uh, Frederick Chevsky's uh, first son, uh, that was his voice, telling how he built a spaceship on his terrace with a, with a friend. And they went. They went to the moon. You know, they, they took some. They took some lumber and they, old boards or something. That's that's what the kid is talking about. Now this became very popular, and, uh, and uh, you know, and it, and it was of the time. This kind of spacey, stony, stoned out. Uh, yeah. Everyone was, everyone had a guru. There was all these Indian gurus going around in Italy and forming various uh, groups. But then uh, at the same time, you know, the only, the only people I was in really touch, really in good contact with were the, uh, like in Milano at that time, the, this group called Aerea, Aerea, Aerea. <laughs> with uh, Dimitrios Stratos and and, uh, and Paolo, and anyway, uh, and Paolo Toffin, Toffin, and and we, we'd get together a lot and talk about equipment and synthesizers, and they got me. I think they got me. Speakers. Or maybe no, no, no. It was another set of speakers. They brought down from Milano, and I. They knew some distributor had them cheap. Anyway, we, 
But there were already signs, like even in the pop world, that people were really attentive to, to the experimental side, the experimental fringes, and uh, especially groups like that, that were doing very important things. And Demetrius Tartus was, uh, himself was a, a one-man band, and he didn't do anything. These were uh, these were um, these were hot times. I'll give you a funny funny story. There was I played a concert. It was in a small town, and I can't remember the name of the town. It, it, it was in Puglia. So I was doing in those days. I was carrying like three ray boxes with me and doing tape loops and, and tape delays and stuff. And uh, that was in this. I was in this piazza in this small town somewhere. This is it's unbelievable. I mean, how, how, how could it be that, you know, like I'm performing outdoors in, in some village in, in, in southern Italy? Anyway, so I did, did my thing, and all the, all the vecchietti, you know, they were all there, and the kids were there, and this guy, and big applause, and so on. And afterwards, uh, I'm packing up and 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 there's this uh, old guy on, sitting on a on a stone bench in in the piazza and he, and he, he says come here he says sit down he says ti devo dire una cosa he says I don't know what you call this music I don't know what you just did and he said this very seriously I don't know what it was but for me it was music. And that was the most, one of the most touching moments in, in my young career, that an old peasant who didn't, never heard anything, whatever it was that I did, says, I don't know what it is, I don't know what you call it, I don't want to know, but I know it's music. And this was like, uh, this was like some sort of sign from above. I mean, it was one of those moments of some old character sitting there toothless or something and, and telling me this. For him, this was, he passed. In other words, I passed the test. Well, always, that's, that's, that that's the part of my music that uh, never lost sight of itself. I mean, aside from the fact my own input was either vocal or using a, a, a horn or you know other things, obvious instruments, or even the synthesizers. I mean, that I was actually performing live. And uh, but then 
you know, the, the, the surround, the, the, the ambience, as it were, I don't mean the ambience in a musical sense, but the, 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 the surrounding sounds would, would always be somewhat referential. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, it could be, you know, whatever, a bunch of ducks quacking or dripping water or something simple, you know, people that could, could, could relate to. And, and in that period, there wasn't very much of this, this uh, kind of uh, composed musique uh, concrète. It was very little. It, it, then it became, you know, I mean, uh, well, even, good God, I mean, the Beatles, uh, 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 A Day in the Life, uh, stuff like, yeah, exactly. I mean, you started using natural, you know, recorded ambient sounds. And, and Sorry. Uh, Franco Battiato as well. Oh, Franco Battiato as well, yeah. That's right, that's right, yeah. <laughs> now there's a case. Yeah, 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 that's right. Galactic shift in 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 the cultural uh, production and dissemination of, of, of music today, and uh, what I'm describing is the product of of a time when small initiatives by people who were politically motivated, uh, progressively motivated in, in, the, in, the, in leftist culture in this country were, uh, were in fact organizing uh, pretty far out concerts in the most remote little villages and places uh, in, uh, in Italy. And, and and they were doing this with, uh, with great success. I mean, and sort of the improvised music concerts, small towns and you know, places. And, and, uh, and in, the context, in the context of the times and in the overall uh, framework of, of the... Of the um, then successfully uh, active uh, leftist parties 
this country was uh, actually opening itself up to be uh, uh, a haven for the avant-garde. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this explains the success and the welcoming, I mean, the living theater, living in, in uh, you know, in a remote northern place. Uh, was it uh, Reggio Emilia? Nowhere. I mean, uh, uh, then being uh, again finding uh, a place near, near, not far from Genova, uh, in a town that was an ex, uh, one of the lar smallest. I mean, smallest, but a very important city for for its anti-fascist uh, activities during the war, and you know, all all of this kind of thing. Um, uh, these connections today are gone. They're gone. The, this, the, so we, we can uh, speculate and talk about that some other time, but uh, they're not gone forever. That is, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the progressive side of human nature, that is, that, that need to unify rather than separate and oppose, um, uh, that, that need to, to harmonize uh, and, and believe in, in some sort of uh, larger universal possibilities of, of peaceful uh, human engagement with one another. Uh, th those, those are still very much alive, very much alive. We're gonna, we're gonna see much more of that in the, in the future. Swing to the right right now is is pathetic and but very predictable. Uh, I'm, I'm having to digest that in that way uh, because I say, man, you know, I spent a lifetime fighting for something else, <laughs> believing in something else, and when I was seeing it cancelled from the chart, from the well, it's being cancelled uh, already, Berlusconi, but you know. I mean, that, you know, it was, you know, you know, you get a tits and ass culture. That's, that's, that's what the people want. That's what they got. And it's all over the, all over the place. It's true. I, I've already walked out from the but there yeah. really is a sense of, uh, of trauma. Uh, I've well, seen this before. Yeah, you've seen this before. Yeah, yeah this is really, yeah. well, this is even, that's even, that, this man's dangerous. Let's go get a, a sandwich.